This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this programme in our series examining the new world. The economist Jim O'Neill finds out why globalisation has become a dirty word and asks how it can be adapted so fewer people feel left behind. As chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Lord O'Neill built his career on spotting trends in global economics, including the rise of what he dubbed the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India and China. He tries to understand the backlash against globalisation and convince its critics that it has been and can continue to be a force for good. I'm looking out at houses being built where I spent over 40 years in my life working with good, hard-working, decent people. It's heartbreaking just to see diggers dig up the ground where I used to work. So we're looking out over what was the factory where they're building a load of houses. Just in that part alone there, we used to produce anything between 40 to 50,000 tyres, passenger and light truck tyres per day. I'm Jim O'Neill, and for over 30 years, my professional life has been all about spotting key trends in global economics. I passionately believe that globalisation is a force for the good of mankind, all eight billion of us. During my career, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people have seen their lives transformed for the better as a result. Of course, I'm aware that not everyone has benefited from globalisation. I've come to Wolverhampton to meet two men who've been on the rough end of it. I'm sat in the old social club of the once all-powerful Goodyear tyres with two ex-workers, Wayne Devaney and Cyril Barrett. I started in November 1968. And what was the peak number of people that worked here? In the whole factory, in and around 7,400. It was massive. So now, Wayne, what are you doing for a job? Well, Jim, I was nine months out of work and it's been really hard trying to find alternative employment. I'm 54 years old. I was on £34,000 a year. And now I'm packaging yoghurts and I'm on £20,000 a year, so I've had a £14,000 cut in my income. How I'm going to survive in the next couple of years, heaven only knows. I hope I'm wrong in this assumption, but I believe in time to come is that in the heartlands of what used to be manufacturing, there will be a rebellion made by people because they've got nothing to lose. From Wolverhampton to Washington, Jim Yong Kim is the head of the World Bank, an organisation whose very name is synonymous with globalisation. He's someone who has to think about it during every moment he's awake. He thinks Cyril could be onto something. There's the famous elephant graph, where if you look at the incomes of all the different percentiles in the world during the period of about 1988 to 2008, everybody's income went up except there's a dip at about the 75th percentile, and that dip persists up until about the 90th percentile, and then it goes back up again. Mm-hmm. So that dip, the elephant's trunk, if you will, that dip is precisely the lower middle class in the uh, OECD countries. Yeah. We could look at this as being their revolt. Exactly. I mean, I think that in many ways, the lower middle class who are driving this revolt are actually doing an effective and realistic evidence-based analysis of the situation of the world. 
In many ways, Jim is the ultimate product of globalization. Some people see me as an American citizen, but most everybody in a poor country sees me as Korean. And so what everyone asks me is, how did you guys do that in Korea? That's what we want. And so globalization worked marvelously for the Republic of Korea. It worked marvelously for China and for most of East Asia. Now, part of globalization is I grew up in Iowa. And just about every single one of my classmates were very enthusiastic supporters of President-elect Trump. And for them, globalization hasn't worked. You know, these are guys who got out of high school and saw the 10%. I mean, 10% of my graduating class went to college. And the guys who went right to work in the steel mills looked at us as if we were just crazy. <laughs> How on earth would you pay money to keep going to school when I'm getting $20 an hour right out of high school in 1978 and I'm, I'm able to buy my house and my first big red truck? And now... What they see is that their lives are not necessarily better than their parents, and the prospects for their children's lives being better than theirs are pretty dismal. So on Facebook, every single one of my classmates were completely behind uh, the candidacy uh, of Donald Trump. I think if the country that designed globalization benefited hugely from it and set global rules of behaviour in 30 years of increasing global trade, votes against globalisation, then they're sending us a signal. For a left-wing take on globalisation, I spoke to Paul Mason, an economic advisor to the Labour Party leadership. There is extreme discontent among people who have just not benefited from 30 years of what I would call neoliberalism, right-wing free market economics, and what they blame, because it is an easy target, is the increasing interconnectedness of the world. So you, you interpret the victory of Trump as a really powerful American vote against globalisation, as we know it. I see Trump's victory as the end of an era. Globalisation took a specific form. And the form it took was neoliberalism. It took the form of right-wing economics. We need to abandon neoliberalism or globalisation will fragment because these national elites will try and keep all the benefits of the right-wing economics, you know, high inequality, high asset growth for the rich. They'll keep all of that, but the way they'll do it is to start breaking up the institutions of the global market. And so you see what's happening. TTIP's dead. TPP is probably dead. The European Union is fragmenting. Perfectly centrist politicians in Europe are starting to take actions that are going to pull Europe apart. That's what happens when a model fails. I think we have to save globalisation by scrapping neoliberalism. At this point, I needed to chat with one of the world's top academics about globalisation. Danny Roderick is a heavyweight on these matters. He published a book suggesting that globalisation was going too far 20 years ago. I like to distinguish between globalisation and hyperglobalization, and I think hyperglobalization is certainly in crisis. And I think that in order to save globalisation, we need to get rid of hyperglobalisation. How would you define hyperglobalisation and distinguish it from calm globalisation or what other <laughs> phrase you might use? <laughs> I think it's a question of ends and means. I mean, I think for the last quarter century, we've had our ends and means confused that instead of globalization being a means whereby we can create and sustain healthy economies and societies, we've basically began to push for trying to 
reduce all possible barriers to trade. So I think concretely, you know, a lot of you know what we built with the World Trade Organization and with the bilateral or regional free trade agreements we signed since then with our push towards globalizing the norm of free capital mobility. I mean, those are concretely what I mean by uh, hyper-globalization. Do you think in this regard, major multilateral organizations like the WTO and World Bank and IMF have made big mistakes? Uh, Yes, I think there was the kind of intellectual framework and narrative that became established in the 1990s was one where globalization essentially became the way in which countries would grow. I think what our narrative at the time failed to see was that, in fact, you know, all countries that have done well under globalization did so in their own terms. They used the world economy, but they always combined it with a domestic economic strategy that uh, was very much internally focused, diversifying your own economy and building new industries and ensuring that social safety nets and and a strong state was there as a complement to your external strategy. So we missed out on sort of the internal dimension of of this key to success. So intellectually, we got only half of the story right. What is also frequently underappreciated is just how many hundreds of millions of people have been taken out of poverty in the past 30 years. In my view, it is very clear that globalisation is responsible for this. But even in some of the places that I think have benefited most, globalisation still has its critics. I think what's wrong with globalisation is that it has operated in a way that has increased inequality and insecurity for most of the working population in countries across the world. As you're about to hear, the Indian academic Jayati Ghosh doesn't agree with virtually anything, I think. It's not just workers in the north who are feeling this pain. It is also workers in the south because there's a significant increase in inequalities in wages, in inadequate employment generation and in more insecure jobs in the developing world and certainly in India where I come from. But isn't that flatly contradicted by a lot of evidence published by the World Bank just in the past month? Which evidence? Which bit of it is contradicted? Well, they show that we have seen an enormous number of people taken out of poverty all over the world. Uh, Well, it's basically China. You take China out and you don't get that big reduction. The the other part is India. Well, China and India are uh, one third of the global population. Yes, but, you know, the Indian story is much more complex. Would I consider India to be a success story in the last 25 years? No. I really would not, because I believe a country in which still we have the worst nutrition indicators of Asia and certainly similar to the worst countries of sub-Saharan Africa, where we have not met the MDGs for child mortality and maternal mortality, where we still have a vast proportion of our population uneducated, where 96% of our workers are informal workers. I don't call that a success story. Well, I mean, for the sake of your argument... Let's take China out of it. But before we do, I find it rather amazing that one can say if you ignore China. No, the reason China, I'm saying China's no, been the no, most no. important thing for the world economy of the past. Yes, 30 but years. that's because China integrated on its own terms. China did not actually take the standard neoliberal package of economic policies. It did a completely different heterodox model. It did it very successfully. The achievement that China has achieved is really a miracle 
that never been seen in the history of humanity. As I said to Jayati, it is kind of impossible to ignore China. I've become well known for creating the acronym BRIC, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India and China. China is bigger than the other three put together, and even growing by just 6.5%, slower than India's rate of more than 7%, China will add the equivalent to nearly two brand new Indias before this decade is over. For a further flavour of the staggering impact China has on the world, I met up with the Chinese ambassador to the UK, Lu Xiaoming. China has elevated 600 million people out of poverty just within 30 years of time. China has developed into a country which has more than 100 million middle class and the life expectancy also increased tremendously. Now it's about 76 years, which is much higher above the world average and also much higher than any other developing countries. Through this remarkable journey, China has become, in many ways, the most important country in world trade. As a matter of fact, China is the largest trading partner with 120 countries. With 120? 120 So more than half of the world's population? Yes, very much so. And China is the largest market for more than 70 countries. And every year, China imports about one trillion US dollars goods. So that's a huge market for many countries. And for the next five years, China will import more than eight trillion US dollars goods from rest of the world. So that shows what kind of contribution China is making and China is going to continue to make. If these numbers keep going in this direction, by 2020, China will be a bigger importer than the EU. This is really the most significant experience of growth and poverty reduction we've ever seen. To put it mildly, yeah. It clearly would not have happened to quite the same extent uh, if you didn't have globalization. Just as I was basking in self-glory about getting it all right, Danny Roderick raised some key issues about China. When you look at how China managed this feat, it violated virtually every rule of post-1990 globalization. <laughs> it, it controlled capital flows. It subsidizes industries. It required foreign investors to use local content. Mm -hmm. It uh, violated trade secrets and intellectual property rights. It maintained wide state ownership, largely to protect employment. You look at this and you say... They've not done it hyper. It wasn't hyper. I mean, in many ways, they, they benefited from other countries' hyperglobalization <laughs> because it was great for them that every other country was playing by the rules of hyperglobalization right. while they were playing it by Bretton Woods rules. Now, I'm not sure about China and trade secrets, but I agree that China has chosen to participate in globalization on its own terms. Danny mentions Bretton Woods. That was the international financial system that evolved after the Second World War. It allowed for US trade surpluses to be recycled to countries with trade deficits. In other words, this allowed the US to send money to help rebuild the likes of Germany, Japan and Korea. As we'll now hear from Yanis Varoufakis, the radical flamboyant former Greek finance minister, 
This was all great, until the US stopped running trade surpluses. After 1971, this system could not continue simply because America lost its surpluses. And then America started recycling everybody else's surpluses. So it was operating like a vacuum cleaner, sucking into America mm -hmm. the net exports of everyone else and the net profits that were going to, to Wall Street in order to close the loop. What we can't do anymore is that which was happening between the mid-70s and 2008, which is to stabilize global capitalism through an expanding trade deficit of the United States, which was creating a tsunami of capital going into Wall Street and allowing Wall Street bankers to financialize on top of that, because that was creating torrents of speculation on the stream of, of capital flows. Mm -hmm. We need a new Bretton Woods, not fixed exchange rates, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we need a new managed capitalism, just like we had between 1944 and 1970. But of course, this is a new paradigm. We will not have fixed exchange rates, We're not going to have a dominant power like the United States. So we better learn how to cooperate at the political level in order to create an economic equilibrium that is capable of averting the rise of this nationalist international, as I call it, that is threatening to wreck civilization. I was not entirely persuaded by Yanis. Since Bretton Woods broke down, we've had an entirely different international monetary system with floating exchange rates. And this period has coincided with a massive reduction in global inequality. What's wrong with that? Of course, at the same time, not everything is working with this system, especially when we have big international trade agreements that not everybody sticks to. Jim Kim of the World Bank also thinks this is a problem. What I'm hearing is that when the great trade agreements were negotiated in the US Congress, NAFTA, for example, The commitment was that we will make up for the job losses by investing more in training programs for people who could lose their jobs. But at the end of the day, with budget cuts and you know the pressures, those programs apparently always sort of got cut out at the end. So there haven't been these retraining programs. So if you go to Silicon Valley, they're saying, we just can't find enough skilled workers yeah. to take the jobs. But if you go to the Midwest, you know, there are still some steel mills left, but it's so hard to function and thrive you know, if you're competing against China that continues to make steel. So I don't know that we got it wrong. I think, though, that there is a paranoia in Korea, in Japan, in Taiwan, in China, about making sure that they're going to be ready for the next wave. I mean, in South Korea especially, they're absolutely paranoid that they got into the semiconductor business. They've perfected the art of going faster and faster in semiconductors, but now they're saying, what's next? So there's a kind of... Um, paranoia about what will be next. And there's a paranoia also among parents about how to educate their children so that they're ready for that next step. That did not happen in my hometown in Iowa. But it's not just about making sure people are trained and ready for new industries. What about those whose skills are no longer needed? The Chinese ambassador explains how they approach this dilemma in Beijing. We also have uh, people in China that they felt like behind. We've been through this economic structure uh, transformation and uh, you have to do away with the overcapacities. For instance, there's a lot of talk about the steel industry. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I read the news that 4,000 people have to be unemployed, I fully understand their feelings because we also faced with the same challenges to re 
allocate about two million steel workers. What's the best way of doing that? You have to train these workers. You have to create new startup business. So on the one hand, we have abandoned steel workers. On the other, there's still a big demand for services, healthcare, logistic、uh, service. So we can train these、uh, steel workers to do some work like this. Maybe Western policymakers need to consider doing more to boost the share in income for workers, and this, of course, is something that China has, I think, deliberately done in a significant way in the past decade. Very much so. The wages of workers has been increased, and also government set the limit of the. Basic, you have to guarantee the wages of the workers, and also a lot of efforts have made to improve the livelihood of what we call migrant workers、yeah. in, in the city. Every year, there are hundred millions migrant workers settled in the big cities. So, government made a lot of efforts to build affordable house for them. The slogan in China is, "Do not let a single people left behind." Not a single person left behind, eh? We're now off to see my ex-boss,、uh, George Osborne, to figure out where it all went wrong. I want to ask him primarily: Should we have done something differently in order to、uh, make people less cheesed off than they seem to be? Hi, George. Jim, it's great to have you here in your new role as a、uh, BBC interviewer. And look, you know, you were the guy who who wrote the book on、um, globalization. You you understood before many of us did that great countries like China and India and Brazil and so on were going to become more connected to the world economy than they had been in the past. And I don't think that's changing. That's accelerating. Much of my professional life in finance, you've had this seemingly never-ending rise of the share of big corporate profit and income. In order to make sure more dissatisfied Western people feel that there's something in it, do we have to go through a period where we actually deliberately give them more of the spoils? Do we want to deliberately increase their wages? Well, you're getting all Karl Marx on me at the moment, <laughs> Jim, and this is an interesting point a, because weird... Marx's argument. I mean, the book, the famous book, was called Das Kapital, Capital,、mm-hmm. and his argument was that in a modern capitalist country. The people who own the money, the capital, would get more and more of the rewards, and the people who provided the labour would get less and less of a share. And you could argue that that's something you're seeing in globalisation, but the answer doesn't have to again be Marx's answer, which is you know, a sort of perfect communist society.、Mm-hmm. What you can do is make sure that people have more capital in capitalism. You can make sure that people have a bigger stake in society, more generous pensions, you know, easier to get on the housing ladder, more access to shares and savings over their life, more perhaps stake in the company that they work for. So you can democratize capital if you like, and I think we have to do something like that. And I think you also have to make sure the returns on labour are worth it. In other words, it pays to work. And when I introduced the national living wage, that's not a conservative thing to do in the kind of classic conservative playbook. People were surprised that George Osborne introduced the national living wage. You must have heard voices saying that is a really dangerous thing to do. It's the first deliberate effort to stop 
the way the labour markets naturally behave the past 30 years. And that, that's partly why I have this thought in my head that maybe, maybe we need more of that. A lot of economists that yeah. I've trained up with would be like, no, that's like a ridiculous thing to do. Well, I thought with the living wage, we'd reached a point where people were in work. You know, we've got a record proportion of the country in work. And in the last year, actually, the people in Britain who had the biggest pay rise were the poorest 5% of the population, which we should all take some comfort from because it proves that you can find answers to these things, so, answers that are not tearing down capitalism, getting rid of free markets, erecting walls, stopping anyone coming into the country. And interestingly, on the day that Donald Trump got elected in America, quite a few American states also voted for increases in minimum wages. The area I've got to obviously ask you about is fiscal policy. Should you have been less horribly austere? I don't think there's any evidence that people were voting against the tax and spend policies of the government or the, or the cut spending and lower tax policy of the government. I think what you're talking about with some of these communities that feel left behind, let's take, you know, the kind of tired industrial towns of the north of England to somewhere, you know, both of us know pretty well. You know, it's not the policies of the last two or three years that have made the difference. It's a feeling that these communities have been neglected for decades. Talking of neglected communities, let's go back to Cyril and Wayne at the Goodyear factory in Wolverhampton. By the time you hear this programme, production at the factory will have stopped. It just come like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. And we was working hard, we was breaking production records. The reason I believe that they got out of Wolverhampton is because in the UK it's cheaper, it's easier and it's quicker to cut production out. Goodyear's closed the factory two, three years ago in France. It took them between five to seven years because of local legislation in the UK, you can close the factory down. Well, it used to be 90 days consultation. It's now 45 days. So you're saying that this decision was a consequence of how relaxed our labour laws are? France and Germany have got greater protection. Not just from the legislation that French government and German governments have got. Are you going to shut the other half of a loss-making plant in France when the workforce decides to kidnap bosses to burn tyres in the street, to overtake the factory and have mass sitting for a whole year. So what you're both saying is that a profitable business was shut here because it was a lot easier to do so and they'd rather avoid the hassle of dealing with tougher workers in both France and Germany. Correct. And you've got a German workforce as well that made sure that Goodyear could not make anybody redundant till 2018. So where are you going to go to shut a factory? So I'm right in thinking both of you voted Brexit. I voted Brexit, yes, and it wasn't on immigration. It was basically the legislation doesn't protect us, it doesn't benefit us, it doesn't give us a level playing field with the workers in Europe itself. I mean, I imagine virtually everybody that was working at Goodyear with you would have thought the same. Without a shadow of a doubt. Do you have any mates that you work with that voted to remain? Not many, not many at all. If you, if you were to say to me five years ago when I have voted to come out of Europe, and I did vote to come out, I would have thought you were completely bonkers, right, quite frankly. I'm not racist. This free market is rubbish. 
it is destroying, absolutely destroying the communities and it's destroying history. When you listen to a tale like that, it's not surprising that the whole of the West Midlands region, except for Warwick, voted Brexit. Goodger has been reducing jobs ever since Wayne started in 1988. Part of this you can't do anything about. Goodger says that the factory was no longer economically viable, telling us... In the face of a challenging business environment, currency headwinds and increasing competition, we need to match capacity with demand to strengthen our long-term competitiveness, reduce complexity and improve structural costs in these operations. Business is business. But could business decisions be made with more thought for their workers? Francis O'Grady is Secretary-General of the TUC. In Britain today, the majority of shares in companies are now held overseas. Now think what that means for those shareholders' sense of affinity with those communities. Shares are held on average for a matter of months. How loyal do those shareholders feel to the people who labour to produce the wealth for them? What's happened to that contract? It's one of the arguments why the TUC and unions have been arguing for what we see as a common sense position, which is that workers should be on boards. So you'd be a fan of the Prime Minister's at least interest in the idea of having worker representation on boards? Well, this is mainstream now in many, many countries. In fact, it's Britain that's the odd one out. And there's a lot of evidence showing very clearly that where you have workers sat around the table, they are the champions of the long-term success of that company. They're arguing for long-term investment, for R&D, for investment in skills and training and apprenticeships, because they've got the strongest interest in that company being a success for them and generations in their community to come, in a way that frankly is not the case now for most shareholders. One of the strangest things that happened during the shutdown was that they offered us jobs in Mexico. In Mexico? In Mexico. And the advertisement was put on the board on an A4 sized piece of paper. Anybody interested just drop a note into HR. Did, did not like 50 of you mischievously think, why don't we all just say we'll go? Well, if we're about it, believe me, but I mean, we had Mexican hats and all that in the, in the factory, <laughs> which was quite funny. <laughs> we Fantastic. all had our photograph took with it on. I've got one in there, I think, somewhere. It is the case, the shifting of uh, jobs, particularly in the auto industry, that's a pretty good thing for people in Mexico that were previously in poverty. And actually, as dreadful as your plight is, past 30 years, we've lived through on a global basis, hundreds of millions of people being taken out of poverty. Well, I mean, you're taking people out of poverty, but you're placing people back in poverty in other areas. Globalisation with companies is not about setting up new factories to benefit that community. It's about stripping, acid stripping, a company that's making a profit to ship it abroad and rebuild it there with that equipment. What I find unacceptable here is the lack of empathy for the people left behind. You can't have companies blandly suggesting workers with deep-seated presence in communities jump on a plane and move halfway around the world. But it's not just about jobs lost. It's also about identity. 
For many of us, what better symbol of identity is there than football? New kids Pogba t-shirts out today, only eight quid. So here we are, stood on Sir Matt Busby Way. Named after one of Manchester United's most famous managers, I'm staring at the ground as we speak and this enormous East Stand, which symbolises United's modern dominance of the commercial side of football. All around me are United fans and visitors, by the looks of some of them, from all over the world. When I started coming, which would now be 52 years ago, this would be at this time before the game, jam-packed with virtually everybody from within 10 miles of where this ground is. That is obviously not the case today. So I've been in the middle of globalisation forces for over 30 years. And when I come and experience this, something so close to my heart and my upbringing, this is when I get a bit troubled about aspects of globalisation. And I worry, especially with the United's current owners, that they're much more interested in getting visitors from around the world than they are from blokes 200 yards away from the ground. The fanatic fans, Manchester United from Indonesia. Have you just come for the weekend? Yeah. And you've yeah. made the trip just to Just for the United. game. Yeah. Almost 20 hours flight. And this is the first time you've ever done it? Yeah, and he's the first time. And you've never been anywhere else in the UK? No. So my company, I'm an employee of UZ1000. Uh -huh. And my company is uh, official beverage uh, isotonic drink for Manchester United in Indonesia. We have a program viewing party. This is the winner of my program viewing party. And they got a lucky and honor to visit and come and watch the game versus Tottenham today. This is like a dream come true. You know? How many times have uh, Manchester United won the league? How many? 20 times. 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 20 with Duncan Drasdo, who's the head of MUST, the Manchester United Supporters Trust, and Andy Walsh, who's a die-hard United fan, just like me and Duncan, but in his case, not been to see United for 11 years. Why is that? Well, in uh, 2005, when the Glazers took over, myself and a number of us thought that was a step too far. Glazers had no connection with Manchester United. They themselves were just investors in the brand as they saw it. And I think they made a comment at the time that they couldn't acquire Coca-Cola for the price that they acquired Manchester United for, but Coca-Cola didn't have the worldwide recognition that Manchester United had. And I think it's a classic example of globalization. It's the movement of capital really effectively, isn't it? We're selling off our assets in this country and it's one thing to sell a business, but these are cultural institutions effectively. Would we be selling off our stately homes without any protection to any business owner around the world who could then exploit it, knock it down, change it, do whatever they want to it. I often say, and this is getting to a real sensitivity for us both to some degree, mm. that City, mm. with their current owners, they're doing it better. I think if you look at what some City fans are saying about what they want from their football club, then it's undoubted that a number of City fans are more satisfied. I think 
you really need to put the thing in context as to what football's about. Is it just entertainment? Is it just sport? Or is it part of people's cultural and personal identity? You know, even though I've not been for 11 years, Manchester United is still my club. And I'll be a United fan till the day I die. Why? 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 Because it's how I was brought up. My dad bringing me here when I was four or five years of age. All those sort of things about who I am. It shaped me as to who I am. And it shaped all the other United fans who've experienced that. And I think that's the problem for me is, is that what we're doing is we're getting owners coming in who don't have any kind of connection to the club and the culture of it. And therefore, they only look at it as an asset that they want to maximise return. So that might mean let's play at different times of day, let's move to different countries to play matches, whatever generates the most money. What should we do to make it better? I'd like to see proper independent directors on club boards. And when I say independent directors, I mean that they're independent of the shareholders. So what they're there for is to protect the longer-term interests of the football club rather than look after the asset for, for the shareholders. But United itself has sort of always been global, hasn't it? Global vision and wanting to actually play on the global stage is fine. I'm not a little Englander. I believe that, that some aspects of globalisation in we terms of... We have Eric or, or Keno. No, we won't, we won't have had Busby. Busby's not a man, man, born and bred Mancunian. Right. Ferguson's not a born and bred Mancunian. Right. But, but they're adopted Mancunians. And, you know, it's not about saying that... You know, it's not like the old Yorkshire cricket... Uh, rule of like you've got to be you know you've God got to be burnt. exactly so it, but, but the whole issue here is then about how do you protect what's special whether it's united moving to some other continent to play or expecting workers from wolverhampton to pack up lock stock and barrel and move to some place in mexico they've never heard of the next phase of globalization will need to be more thoughtful otherwise this discontent might stop it all and end in destructive trade and capital barriers. As we've heard from virtually all my guests, regardless of their political colour, globalisation is a good thing, but it needs to start working better for those who are missing out the most. I wish someone would have dreamt up ideas like the Northern Powerhouse or Midlands Engine 20 years ago, rather than the two or so when my ex-boss George Osborne did, because undoubtedly, this is where economists and policymakers have got it wrong. You can't just assume that markets will be able to spread the considerable benefits of globalization on their own. If we could sort this, globalization has got a lot of good to spread to us all, and it's not stopping anytime soon. In fact, the Chinese are planning a new silk route that is gonna take it up another gear. I would regard this as a new globalization, one of the reasons why there's a resentment about globalization. I think is uh, some people feel left behind, yes, and some so. countries feel left behind. So the purpose of Belt and Road, the main theme is inclusiveness to include all countries. So uh, we're talking about countries like Kazakhstan, Ka yeah. Russia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and also many European countries along the road. For instance, in the past three years, Eurasia Express Railway have been very successful. Mm -hmm. I think 4,000 trains has been in operation, transporting goods from China all the way to uh, European this, countries. This ends up in Vienna, if I'm not mistaken, this train. Yeah. And also the road we are talking is uh, New Silk Sea Road, linking China to uh, Southeast Asia, Philippines, uh, Indonesia. Though China's growth has been slowed down uh, a little bit, China's still a engine of the world economy, 
So China wants other countries to share the benefits of China's growth, and China believes China can only continue this momentum by linking with other countries. Globalization, look, it's the water we swim in. Being against globalization is like being against breathing or oxygen. I mean, it, it's there. And if one country or one region decides to pull out, it doesn't mean that globalization is going to stop. Head of the World Bank, Jim Kim, agrees with me and thinks talk of peak trade is just that, talk. China will keep trading. I mean, this is, there's just no way that they're going to stop. There is evidence in the past three or four years that the previous two to three decades faster rise in world trade compared to global GDP has reversed. And so we have world trade growing not at all or very slowly compared to the low level of global growth. Do you believe that that is a temporary phenomenon, a permanent one? When the global economy was growing at three, three and a half percent, global trade was growing at seven, seven and a half percent a year. And now our prediction for next year is that the global economy will grow at about two and a half percent. Trade is growing at about 1.6, 1.7 percent. So this is a complete switch. You know, um, my good friend Roberto Acevedo from the World Trade Organization doesn't think that this is permanent. But I think that all the evidence suggests that what we need to do to get the economy growing at more robust rates is increase trade, not decrease trade. There's just no way that we're going to get out of this low growth period without increasing trade. Whatever it is, we need to do something to make sure that it's not permanent. It has to not be permanent. If it's not, if this period of low trade, trade below 2% growth a year continues, then I think that that very frightening scenario of more and more countries going into fragility, conflict, violence, extremism, and exporter of refugees, I think you're going to see that happen in country after country after country in the developing world. And so we've got to find a way to begin stimulating both trade and economic growth. Globalization may not be perfect, but I agree with Jim Kim. Without it, our problems will be even bigger. What seems clear is that globalization has got to evolve in a more inclusive way. If we do that, then I won't be asked to do a program like this for a long time. If we don't, I could be back next year. The New World was presented by Jim O'Neill and produced by Helen Grady. And among the other episodes in the series, David Willits reveals the secret engine of economic growth. I can tell you it involves a python swallowing a pig. <laughs>